From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Rabbi Eli Mansour, rabbi at the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue. Rabbi Mansour explains how he gets it all done, shares what the Ashkenazi and Sephardi worlds can learn from each other, and discusses what excites him about today's Jewish world. Also, Rabbi Brody talks about his experience running 13.1 miles. And when will Rabbi Goldberg run 13.1 miles? All this and more, Behind the Bima. Good evening. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I am Rabbi from Goldberg, joined by my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Joshua Brody, and we are here to take you behind the Bima. We are here to take you behind the Bima. We uh, continue to dedicate all the learning and all the classes, all the programs to a speedy and a complete and a painless Rafu Shlema. Esther Tehila Bas Ariat Sipora, Carmel Shai Ben Reza, two children in our community that we look forward to hearing. Please, God, good news about good health. Rabbi Brody, great to be with you together again great with a very special you. guest, Rabbi Ili Mansour, uh, incredible speaker, somebody who comes to BRS every year, really excited to be able to have him on. You seem to be wearing something around your neck tonight. What is that colorful thing around your neck? Look you know, before that. we get to it, let me just tell you a quick story. My sister had lunch with a friend of her, Sarah Stark in Israel this week or last week, and, and Sarah Stark tells her the following story. She's at some public place and there's a stage and the stage has a microphone and she has uh, i think her youngest child is nine or ten years old so you know kids see a microphone and no one's around they always run over and grab it yeah so she watches she sees her son uh, goes over I and grabs the, the microphone <laughs> yeah she sees her son runs over and grabs the microphone she's curious what's the kid gonna say right what are they gonna say in the microphone so her son grabs the microphone they live in ronana israel grabs the microphone and he says welcome to behind the beam <laughs> Isn't that great? I hope someone recorded it. I hope so too. Rabbi Brody, what is around your neck? So it was a big week. High Lifeline ran their annual marathon, Miami Marathon. And uh, even though a number of years ago, I ran a half marathon, my first one, and I swore. I don't know. But let's just be honest. I, don't, I know you're probably not supposed to swear, but I said I'm not doing another half marathon after the last one. Right. But Rabbi Moskowitz got me into this one and uh, went down there. We had to leave. This I'm not going to do again. There, there are people that stay over for Shabbos. That way you don't have to wake up like I did at 2.30 in the morning, drive to Miami. <laughs> it's not even normal. I yeah. slept, slept at my mom's house so that I would, wouldn't be stressed so I can just go to sleep at night. Of course, that didn't work. But get down there, <laughs> 4 o'clock in the morning. You have to be shuttled over. And you're with 15,000 people in different corrals. They call them corrals. So you can start at different times, different intervals. And... Um, I don't know what came over me, but this is like, you know, when you think you're a lot younger than you are, you know, people say, you know, maybe act your age. And that's where it takes, takes a, a little bit of good advice to perhaps maybe train for a half marathon. I know you'll say it's only a half a marathon. Let me Did tell you me. train? Did you train? Did you prepare? Or you were just this like, time, oh. this time, not even, no, they didn't even go for a jog. <laughs> no. When is the last, before they the marathon, <laughs> when is, when is the last time you went for a run before the actual marathon? Last run I did. Not just like a sprint at, you know, just getting ready for maybe a warm up of a, of a, of at the gym. The last yeah. run was probably about a year and a half, two years ago. Wow. So you went from a cold just start, cold. just a no cold run, start, nothing, and no training. It's not like you ran one mile, then five, then eight. You went from nothing to a half marathon straight. And um, I got to tell you, the first three miles were actually pretty good. I was feeling good. Fourth and mile, it's pretty good. Fifth mile, I started feeling it a little bit, the, the joints. Mm. And the muscles, then, then joints you didn't know you had. And then all of a right. sudden you get to mile, I think it was mile eight. 
Now, mile eight is a very big accomplishment. Like you're, you're more than halfway there. And you just realize, like I told my son who was running, I said, AJ, the, the biggest rule of running is you don't stop. Because once you stop, it's all over. You can't just regain that momentum. And I had to stop. I couldn't, I couldn't take another wow. step. So I walked a couple of, you know, for about five minutes and I, then I jogged again. I, I had to walk again and I jogged. And then I'll tell you something special happened around the 10 mile mark. This is where the magic started to happen. You see, along how, the how long, a half marathon for our listening audience is uh, 13.1 miles. 13.1. The last time I did, I had, a, I had a good time. It's an hour and 57. And now I'm eight miles and I'm already, I think, at the two hour mark. So I'm not even done and I'm already past where I was right back in the day. Right. But you get to the 10 mile mark and you're like, okay, it's only 13, it's only three miles to go. And I know it's going to be hard. And I don't think I can make it. But the only problem is, I don't know where I am in Miami. I'm not near my car. I don't even know who to call, pick me up if I don't, if I don't make it to the end. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing around the 10 mile mark, you start seeing all these banners and all these people, most of them holding up pictures of children, mm. most of them holding up pictures of people that are, you know, you can just tell that they're, they're sick. And, uh, you know, so-and-so is running for so-and-so and so-and-so. And then the song I was listening to came on and I was like, you know, these people are going through so much and we're thinking about some of our friends that are also going through their own challenges. And I'm like, Absolutely. I know, I know much they want to be here right now doing right. this. Right. And then something just came over me. I'm like, I mean, so much pain, obviously not nearly as much pain as any of these other people are going through their, their own challenges. I'm like, I got to just keep going. And I've never done this in my life where I finally made it to like the last dash where this is the point where normally anyone that makes it that far you just give it everything you got and you put the music on rocky or something you're just gonna make it to the finish line i couldn't even make it i literally i showed you a short video i i was i was limping i made it across i see a hot sala sign you limped across i limped across i see hot sala. i said i need hot sala i couldn't even i couldn't even walk at that point i literally i i collapsed on the other side of the finish line ladies and gentlemen rabbi, rabbi brody just showed me that video right before we came on live <laughs> and he didn't say who it was he said look at that guy I just watch him right. and i see this guy limping and waddling and barely making it and i said is that so-and-so from the community i was confused it was from a far distance. much older than us and who was oh. the so-and-so it's someone who's 92 years old i right. thought it was a 92 year old who managed to do the half marathon that's what rabbi brody looked like at the finish yeah. line so i've never felt i've never been in so much pain from any any exercise or any sporting event in my life but that's a very beautiful story that you thought about our dear friend who we love yeah. and, and and we know wanted to do that and wants but to be it, here and we're thinking about him all the time but, and but it, but it also shows you the energy it also shows you the it's it's the it's that plus the people cheering you on it's weird you don't know these people it's the strangest thing they're standing on the sidelines they must be there for hours because i was already close to three hours already it was about two hours and 40 minutes, I think. And they, they're just cheering for you. And they're like, go for it. You can do it. And I'm like, mm. I'm going to do it. <laughs> now, in your defense, it was, a, it was a relatively hot day for Florida. Again, if you're listening from outside Florida, we do not expect sympathy cards from you. We know. We have nothing to complain about. But for Florida in February, it was a hot day Sunday. Florida yeah. can't decide what it wants. It's like either 40 day degrees or, yeah. or 90 degrees. Simply can't decide what it wants. So... Um, so um, it was, it a, was hot a hot day. day. It was yeah. humid. It was hot. There was no cloud cover. And I saw a lot of people posting who were really, they did train and they, they tore up their hard. body. They struggled. It was a story about a woman who, who went 26.1 miles. She, she didn't finish at 0.1 mile mark. That was it. She couldn't get to so, the end. It's very stuff. difficult. And I'll tell you, there were parts of the race where I'm, Again, the first eight miles, I was doing okay. And then the next part where you see people pushing people in wheelchairs 
and you see people pushing people in strollers right. and they're going right. past you. And I'm right. like, when's how are they? I'm, I'm a runner here. Apparently I'm not, yeah. you know, the point is if you're going to do it, train. And again, call a vote to everyone in high lifeline that made this happen. What yeah. a huge kid of Shashem this was. There were more people in the high lifeline group from any other group. And they kept calling out this group. They called them team lifeline. And this uh, DJ or whoever was there was just, you know, I think he was so impressed with everyone that was that was running from this group. It's nice. The people who worked hard raised that money. High Lifeline does incredible work. And, and yeah. all the people it does work for, we dive and we pray from the bottom of our hearts that uh, we should hear, please, God, good news Amen. from Amen. them. Amen. You and I were uh, at an event. We actually just ran out of to be able to come to you live. For those wow. who know, the Bima is live. We are live Wednesday night. And it was a very powerful event. We had an event here in Boca. Uh, Lady Elaine Sachs. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Zechron Lavracha's uh, wife, Rebitson Lady Elaine, not sure exactly what to call her. She's so humble, soft-spoken, um, unpretentious that it makes it hard to even know yeah. how to refer to her. Uh, Joanna Benarush, Rabbi Sachs's longtime, very loyal uh, right hand, and Rabbi Sachs's son-in-law, Elliot, who is the chair of the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust, uh, was really amazing. And um, it was uh, a Beautiful event. Try to help the Legacy Trust and make sure Rabbi Sachs's legacy continues. Actually recorded. I, I did an interview. Uh, Lady Elaine had introductory remarks, and then I did an interview with Joanna and with Elliot, um, really about kind of behind the beam of Rabbi yeah. Sachs that people didn't know. And uh, don't give away any of it now, but, but things people don't know and special moments that they experienced and what they think that legacy is. So we'll probably publish it as a bonus episode of Behind the Beam, just the audio of that conversation. It was a small group, really nice evening, and hopefully we'll advance that legacy trust because there's so much to learn from. There were six points of what the legacy trust will be doing. Every one of them is invaluable, really, really important. Right. If it was just even one, it would be an opportunity to support and yeah, yeah. make it happen. Right. There's six. Just one of them. The so best yeah, part was at, at the end where there was a special uh, violin player. So I went over to him afterwards and I said, you know, I play drums if you ever want to do something together. <laughs> He's laughed can, at me. Can a violinist and a drummer jam? Yeah, that's basically what he said. He's like, that just doesn't work. I'm like, we can make right. it work. You know, I don't, I don't know. What, what I don't would know. you play? How would you jam? Yeah, it's a good. Uh, yeah, uh, there's some stuff. There's, I, I won't get into it right now, but there's some, there's some okay. good, good stuff that we can get into. Yeah, that that violin player actually at uh, a very young age was on his way to becoming a uh, a world famous classical violin player. Right, I went a different route, probably a lot more. A little bit of a different route. Um, but he but did play tonight to end the evening by sax, appreciated music, and ended with a beautiful classical piece by Bach, I think. Right, yeah, and um, yeah, that was nice, that was kind of cool. Real so, avid behind the Bima listeners will know that one of the BR behind the Bima hosts played the violin when he was younger. Let's see in the comments, anybody listening who remembers. An early, I remember early episode. I do remember. remember which episode it was? Like it was the Mother's Day two. Moms episode. <laughs> it was the Mother's Day Moms episode. Our moms were on, and there were pictures shown of the three hosts in our youth and different uh, instruments that we played. Right. So let's see who remembers which behind the Bima host played the violin. Everybody knows that you play the drums. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you're a big sports guy, basketball and football. When it comes to running, you know, is that something you would do? I, I know you would say it's not so much of a sport in the sense that there's not much skill compared to the skills you need for the other sports. But can you see yourself running? I've, I've tried going the I've distance. Tried. 
Yeah, I've tried to get yeah. into running several times. You know, the people who are runners, either they're fooling themselves or everyone else, or they really believe it. But they talk about when you hear from a runner talking about the runner's high, it's second only to hearing a vegan talk about how much they love being a vegan. <laughs> The worst combination is a vegan runner. Right, exactly. Like just, that's like a and, lethal combination. Oh, but uh, but the runners talk about that runner's high and the runner's high, and I love the runner's high and hit the runner's high, and I, I can't unless I run. So I've tried to. And and the problem is, I'm not going to say I'm athletic, but I've been known to play sports. I enjoy right. it. I'm competitive. The running, all I do is hear my, my heart beating in my chest, my joints, my knees. There's nothing. So people love that. Oh, there's nothing. It's just me in the road, me and nature, right. me and thing. I'm tortured. So if I'm playing at a tennis point or point when I was younger and I played basketball all the time, if I were if I were playing a basketball game and there was a point that didn't end and you're running up and down the floor, up and down the floor, tight defense, and you're you're about to pass out, you can't breathe. But I don't even know because you're just caught up in the point. You're distracted by it. Right. So you know there's a dead ball or in tennis, the point's over, and then you're like, all of a sudden, I can't breathe. Give me a second. But in the point, I don't even know it. Because the tennis or the basketball is distracted. When you're running, all there is is the running. So I actually recently with 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 my children, I thought, what a beautiful thing. What a nice thing. A couple nights a week, I'll go for a run with my kid. Okay. It's good. It's healthy for us. It's a good time. So I made it the whole plan. I told them I was really excited about it. And I said, there's just, there's just one problem. It's like, what is it? I said, I don't really want to do it. <laughs> like, like it was so nice in theory and the image and the – I love the idea of finishing right. the run. If I could skip to right to the finishing the run, I'd love it. I'd love it, but it's just, I know the people who are into it. It's great. I admire you. I frankly, I'm jealous of the people who are into it. There's no cost. You can do it anywhere. You can go anytime. You know, there's, there's so many advantages to it. Just go outside and you do it. Huge advantages to it. I'm jealous. I admire. I wish it just never has done it for me. Doesn't do it. It's such a, for me, it's, I've never, I don't know about that runner's high. Again, we we have friends that, that, that we know always talk about that. For me, it's just such a mental game. I can't, I, I can't explain it. Because you don't again, you don't need the skill of the basketball or the football and know how to right. throw. You just have to go. Game. It's just, it's your just, body's like quit, and your mind's like your don't. mind. Your body, at least my body, is constantly saying, "Okay, you did it. You did enough. Now it's like it. It your body cannot go another mile. You just right. can't do it. And how do you convince yourself just to keep running in spite of the fact that you're in incredible pain? It's real pain. Right. It's it's hard. And it's why would you mind? Well, why would you? Yeah, gotta so be a sugar to do it. Yeah. The ultra marathoners and the extreme sport people, that, that's what it's for them. It's all about that. I just, I can't do that. I don't know why I'd want to, if I'm in pain, why would I want to be in pain? <laughs> so my point is, if I'm in pain in the middle of a tennis point, I want to win the point. So there's a, there's a reason for the pain. But if I'm in pain and my body hurts, just to be able to say my mind defeated the body, but you're in pain. Right. How Look, many if, runners are getting like knee replacement surgery? So I, probably, I don't know. Right, probably. And if you think about it, I guess in football or any other sport, basketball, there's going to be a point in the game after a play where you're going to substitute in another player, right? Here in yeah. running, there's no stop. You're just constantly right. on the move. Right. It doesn't end. You, you well, don't we've, got, we've got a couple people who commented, and they're all wrong. The violin player. Can I get a drum roll? The violin player behind the BMO was yours truly. That's right. Played violin. I was actually decent at it. I still have my childhood violin at home. Gave it up. Because I thought it was nerdy and not cool. <laughs> you hit an age as a young boy where you're like, where just guitar, like drums, dr- that's where it's at. Right. You'd be like, oh, well, I play the violin. Now, I mean, I wish I kept doing it. Now it's amazing. Right. Beautiful music you can produce. But at the time, it was not cool. So it was not. Uh, what are they all saying? They, I, I can't see the comments. Are they saying that Rabbi Moskowitz was the violin player? <laughs> They're all saying Rabbi Moskowitz was the violin player. <laughs> he we played the. Yes, tonight. 
Yeah. We, we have uh, somebody who's no stranger to our community, Rabbi Eli Mansur. He's a brilliant Talmud Chacham, a phenomenally entertaining, inspiring speaker. He is a community leader. Uh, he has embraced technology to promote Torah. He's a really, really special, special person. Oldest of five siblings um, who came to parents, grandparents came to the United States from the Middle East. And he went to Mag and David Yeshiva, which was led and founded by his great uncle. Wow. And he studied Torah, absorbed the richness of the Syrian heritage from great rabbis, most specifically Rabbi Baruch ben Hayim, who was a Chavrusa, a study partner of Rav Avadya Yosef. So wow. Mansur studied with the best. He went from the Sephardi world and he studied in the in the Ashkenazi world. In um, he studied in uh, Merkaz Torah in Yerushalayim, in Beis Medrash Gavoa, BMG in Lakewood. And today he is the rabbi of the Edmund Safa Synagogue in Brooklyn, New York. And he's in deal in the summer. I don't know. Right. I thought people <laughs> need a vacation this summer. He just switches where he works in the summer. He really has boundless energy and he puts out incredible amounts of Torah. And he's a really, really special person. And we're grateful and honored to be able to welcome him without any further ado to Behind the Bima, Rabbi Mansur. What a great zchut. What a great zchut to be joined by Rabbi Eli Mansur, who's a Great friend of our community, Bokerton Synagogue. And uh, Rabbi Mansur, we're so grateful for all the times that you've come, that you've spoken, that you've inspired, that you've elevated us. Thank you for being with us and letting us go behind the bima with you today. It's my pleasure, Rabbi. Thank you for your hospitality. And it's great to spend some uh, time outside the synagogue online with you as well. Absolutely. So Rabbi Mansur, let's get right to the heart of the matter. Here's my question. You produce, you distribute, you inspire, you teach an enormous amount of content. You have websites that have daily updates of Torah. Dafyomi early in the morning, Shiurim throughout the day, leading a very robust community and sought after around the world. How do you get it all done? Tell us your, <laughs> tell us your time management secrets. Tell us how you balance it all. Tell us how, how you how are you able to accomplish so much? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't like to think about it too much because like you said, Rabbi, it really doesn't make any sense. And if I probably would sit down with a schedule and, you know, mark everything down that's being done, I would say this is impossible and I would probably quit. So my first uh, initial response always has to be that there's a tremendous siyata dishmaya that uh, somehow, and the rabbi knows better than me, when you work for the Sibur and you're working for Kla Yisrael, you know how the, we, we learn always in the homage that there's certain things that it's like kifisat derek, like Eliezer got there in one day, even though it should have taken, you know, a week's time. So I, I think in Rabbanut, those that work L'Shem Shavayim, like the rabbi, uh, I think there's kifisat aderech. I think there's a siyatad that we get, not in our merit, but in the merit of the people, that things come to us quicker, or we're able to find what we need to find, or the time somehow expands. You know, like they talk about in the olden days, the Hasidim Rishonim. It says you used to pray three hours for Shahari, three hours for Minha, three hours for Arbit, so nine hours a day they're praying. So the Gemara says, how do they have time anything else and the right. governor says because they were the shem shamayim there was a blessing in their time so I, mm. I have to give the credit to uh it's probably something a little supernatural although it's hard work i'm not going to say no i mean uh, i don't think if somebody just sits back it's going to come to them you know through osmosis i think you have to work for it obviously but when you go to your fullest capacity then of course god steps in and then the time stretches and that, that's I, i'll give you a proof rabbi uh when i'm away let's say Let's say on a Shabbat that I'm off. Right, right. And uh, let's say, you know, uh, last minute they'll say, Rabbi, could you get up and say uh, say something? I find myself struggling. That's the amazing thing. I, I, can't, I can't get 15 minutes 
without, you know, having tremendous pressure. And the simple right. reason is because I'm away from the cow. Oh, wow. So it's really the schus of the cow. That's that's an amazing insight. There's definitely truth to that. I feel that. I see that all the time where there's a siyat deshmai. You wanted the right story. You're looking for the right word, the right var Torah. And when you merit it, Hashem helps it come easily. And sometimes you could be flipping and flipping and reading and looking and it's, uh, why isn't it coming? You have to stop and dive in over it. But are there practical tips? Are there practical tips for how you are preparing for each of these shirim, each of these classes? You're meeting with the people. You have a certain vision and a, and a rabbinic entrepreneurship that's built community. So do you have, are, are you very strict with your time? Meaning, are you very punctual and do you end on time? How do you manage the many people who want to meet with you or use your time? What are some of the rules that you're using in order to be able to organize your day so you get it all done? Yeah, well, it, it has to be, obviously, you have to be up early. You know, the the, the famous uh, saying that they used to say in yeshiva, that uh, the, the yeshiva guy wants to finish shas in one night and he wants to sleep eight hours that night also. But it, right. it, obviously, it doesn't work. Obviously, time is of the essence. So we really start our day, uh, you know, by 5 a.m. We're rearing to go. I mean, my poor congregation, they got stuck with a rabbi who's, uh, who's an insomniac, you know. <laughs> so these guys <laughs> got to be up from the crack of dawn. Wow. But they're like soldiers. And uh, e- everything follows a discipline. So right after Shahrit, for example, uh, I'll go into my office, and I know for the next half hour, like I just did, I'll prepare the Sefer Hinuk for the next day because we give one mitzvah of the day. Right. Uh, then uh, usually I'll uh, – I-, I work on the Shabbat class the whole week. It's not something that I do in one sitting. So I'll give, you know, 20 minutes to hear and develop something and then come back to it. And, you know, it's got to be cooked. It simmers the whole week. I always say that my best day of the week is uh, Shabbat when everything is done. You know, all my shiurim are prepared and are delivered. And the worst time of the week is Saturday night when I started blank sheet again. You know, what I'm saying? Right. I'm zero again. All the tank right. is on empty and we got to start again. But that class, which is a marquee class, the Shabbat stuff that's given in front of the whole you know, community or the congregation, that I do in increments, you know, 20 minutes here, 20 minutes. But there's always a book in my hand. I mean, right. when I go to a wedding, I mean, weddings, our ceremonies could take forever with the hazanut and the singing. And, uh, you know, I could do all, I could do a daf and a half during that time. So you'll always see me with a book in my hand or, you know, some sort of paper that I'm writing. That's part of the time management. And as a rabbi, we're invited to a lot of these functions. And I came to learn that it's a lot of wasted time until you get to the essence of the, of the function itself. So uh, in the car, you know, we're listening to stuff. You know, if I have to listen to the DAP, for example, I give a class in Deal, which is New Jersey. So I have an hour and a half or three hours in the car forward. So I listen to somebody else give the DAP. OU has a great website. I like to hear the other guys, you know, the Ashkenaz, my friends, how they give the DAP. I like to get their pronunciation also and hear what they have to say. So listen, you're never doing nothing. You're always listening to something, right. reading something, or writing something. And then all of a sudden, someone will call you and say, have Shalom Bayit. You say, oh my gosh, there's no time for that. that that's a. That's the rabbi's worst nightmare when somebody calls you for Shalom Bayit. As the rabbi knows, because that's that's not a five-minute meeting, you know. Yalev Yavu, I forgot it. Do I have to repeat the Amidah? That's, that's a daunting test, and that throws you off. I, I right. cannot say no. Then right. you feel depressed, because you know you're going to have to give this couple hours, and then you're just going to have to figure it out where, where you're going to stick them. And then you can't say no, obviously. That's our responsibility. But again, so can, the answer yeah. to the question is it's, it's this, the discipline. It's constantly having to work work. You know, That's the key word is the discipline. It's the discipline to set goals and follow through on the commitments that you make to yourself about how you're managing your time. What does Rabbi Mansour do to relax? 
When you said you have to be productive every moment, there's a book in your hand every second. So that's true. And of course, the, to take advantage of time is, is how you could produce and accomplish what you have. But what does Rabbi Mansour do for downtime? Yeah, well, I must say, and obviously the rabbi agrees that Ben Franklin said, make your vocation your vacation. So we, we both love what we're doing. So, you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a task or, or a heavy chore. But to the rabbi's point, it is definitely a pressure. Uh, what should I tell? I love listening to music. You know, so in the downtime, I'll sit back uh, and I'll listen to music. I'm not going to lie to you that I might take a cigar out once in a while and, uh, you know, relax. But that's, uh, you know, I, even rabbis have yitzhara, what should I tell you? And, uh, you know, I spend, well, listen, when I can spend time with my wife, the Rebbitson, and, you know, go out of town for a little while and maybe come to Florida like I am today, I uh, I, I do that also. So I, I, I do try to, you know, balance it. But, yes, I like to listen to music. I like to, to, to relax a little in the sun here in Florida. Beautiful. You were out early, and, and actually read some books. I, I love reading these these books about the Gedolim and stuff like that. When I when I do have the time, I just read a, a book about this uh, fellow uh, Pear, who was uh, uh, who was a writer for the uh, for one of the Israeli newspapers. He wrote for the military. Cra mm. Crazy crazy books like that, or the prime ministers and things like that. To read you know books like that just to divert from something else. Do you have a favorite? You have a great uh, book list you could recommend to people? A top three books that, that you would tell someone, read this, it'll change your life? Oh, well, listen, well, hashkafically, uh, I loved the book when I read it, The Guardian of Jerusalem, the story of Rav Chaim Sonnenfeld. I felt that gave us a tremendous history of right. you know, what happened in Jerusalem of old. Um, I just recently read that book that I told you about, uh, the prime ministers, the four prime sure. ministers. I thought it was fantastic behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on in Israeli politics. And... Uh, I don't know, right or wrong, but I uh, so, somehow I guess men have an attraction to uh, to mob stuff and mafioso stuff. Uh, for some reason, that's uh, you know some of those mob books also attract me. Jewish mafia stuff. You have to listen to last week's guest. We had on uh, Myron Sugarman, the last Jewish gangster, uh, Pop Sugarman, and uh, we talked all about the there you the, go the Jewish mafia fighting the American Nazis just just last oh, yeah. week. Right. So Rabbi Man, so you were out early using technology and the internet, the daily halacha. All of these websites, each on their own, people were subscribing, getting notifications, going to them. You know, when the internet was just starting and nobody knew what WhatsApp was and people didn't have smartphones, you were utilizing technology. Did you have hesitations about using technology? Did you get pushback? <clears throat> were there critics who said, you're endorsing the internet, you're driving people to this hatuma. they're going to use it in very unholy, unhealthy ways. Um, why did you persevere and break through anyway? And what are the next plans? Are you just doing, are you continuing where you are or are you always looking at what's the next big technology and how can I utilize that to spread Torah? Yeah, well, thank God we come from a community that's um, the Syrian community in Brooklyn and, and, and D in New Jersey. Uh, you know, they're obviously traditional and, you know, you know, orthodox to the highest level, but their, their mind is a little bit, uh, what should I say, a little more open and uh, accepting of, these types of uh, you know uh, you know uh, vehicles to use to even though we understand the inherent dangers and we're not we're not uh, oblivious of that, but uh, I guess we look at it as like uh, you know a knife. I, I could cut my bagel with it, or I can you know I can stab somebody with it. I mean, if uh, it's used responsibly, and already I think that argument, to be, to be honest with you, is, is is over. I mean, go on the internet, anybody who's anybody from the gedole gedolim or the ketanik ketanim, the biggest to the smallest has found their niche somewhere, you know, on an internet service. I think that that's a moot argument. Uh, uh, so I'm glad that we understood it from the beginning. But um, to be honest, 
I, I, it's, I don't want to deceive any of your listeners or your viewers. Uh, for example, initially when we gave the daily halakha, so it's a little deceiving because I orate it. And I orate it in front of the congregation. And then I send that oration to a friend in Sfat, a fellow by the name of David Silverberg, who's our official writer. And then he transcribes it for us. And then he sends it back all the way from Sfat so I can just proofread it. And then we send it out to our uh, our readership, which is, I think, today over 25,000 on Daily Halakha. That wow. we didn't, you know, we didn't pursue them. They came to us. You know, we're not missionaries. They, they, they came to us and, you know, willfully signed on. So that's a little deceiving. How does he have time to write all this stuff? I really don't write anything. You know, I, I orate it, but we have the writers that are writing it. I'm just proofreading it. A lot of the Pedasha stuff uh, as well. Just It runs through the oration, and then we have David who's a... I mean, in David's case, I must say, nothing is lost in the translation. It's probably a little clearer the way he writes it than I orated it. You feel he captures your voice when you oh, read it? No, no, he can't do <laughs> He can't capture my voice but he definitely ca captures the content uh, of what I'm trying to say in a very, very clear way. He's, he's superb. That's amazing. So, um, you know, Rabbi Mansour, your, your background, obviously, is Sephardi Syrian. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you also learned in Ashkenazi institutions. So how were you able to maintain your roots? You know, we have a lot of communities where someone who grew up Sephardi ends up going to an Ashkenazi school and they're Ashkenized. They lose their roots, their minhagim, their pronunciation. And certainly then for the next generation, it gets lost. So how are you able to hold on tight and dear? And now you're an ambassador for Syrian Misora and minhagim and, and really somebody who represents and is promoting and teaching it. How are you able to blend that even as you went through parts of the Ashkenazi system? I, 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 they once invited me to be the guest of honor at BMG at uh, you know lakewood's uh, dinner as, as an alumni although, although it was a footnote a lot of syrians came to the dinner and one syrian said you know rabbi i'd like to give you a check for the yeshiva you know i'm, I'm proud of what you're doing and what they're doing and he wrote the check and he made it out to bmw so go figure out <laughs> syrian uh syrian mistake but the yeshiva figured out a way to cash it i'm sure anyway but the point is that um so i said at that dinner there was thousands of people. The Rosh Hashivas were there, and the Mashkiah, they were all there. And I said, listen, when I came to Lakewood, I was surprised that when I went to the bookshelf, I found Harambam, Maimonides, the Rashba, the Ramban, the Ritva, the Ran, the Reef. I said, hold it. That's the American League. These are all our guys. These are all our rabbis. So they're <laughs> learning all Torah Sefaradim in, uh, in Yeshiva. So therefore, you know, if anything, if anything, what, what, what's to be ashamed of? On the contrary, you know, the Torah, the Sfaradit is the primary Torah in the uh, in the yeshiva world. I, I have a cousin that lived in Boston, a Sith family. So they were very close to the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, because he lived in Boston during the week as well. And uh, so my cousin invited, my aunt invited the Rav to a bar mitzvah. So the Rav gets up at the bar mitzvah and he says, uh, listen, Rav Oisai, you're probably wondering what an Ashkenaz guy like me is doing at a bar mitzvah of, uh, you know, Sefaradi, uh, but I'll have you know that I spend most of my awake hours with the Sefaradim. <laughs> and my best friend is the Sefaradi, and that's my, my Manadis. <laughs> wow. I'm with them great... all day long. So, and, and as a community, we're very proud. It's a very close-knit community that we have, and we're very into the Minhagim. So we're brought up like that. We're into the foods, and into the songs, and there's a pride that we have. I would say the Syrians have a pride maybe more than any Sephardic uh, community. You know, there's Moroccans, bless them, and there's Persians, bless them. They're all great. 
but for some reason by us, you know, the reading, they drill it into your brain when you're in elementary school, read it the right way with the right intonation and the tunes of the Torah. So it's right, it's a cultural thing. You know, we're very proud of, of where we could rightfully so. That is great. What, what would you say are some of the differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews? Obviously, there are the stereotypes, and we'll leave that to the comedians at shul dinners to talk about the stereotypes of the Ashkenazi and Sephardi. But having been in both worlds, learned in both worlds, and benefited from both worlds, what are some of the things people don't appreciate that are differences between the Ashkenazi and Sephardi worlds? What can we learn from one another? Well, I, I said it once. Uh, I was on a panel with the uh, the late Rabbi Sachs. I love We were on a Pesach trip together by Jonathan Sachs. And uh, this question came up. And um, so Rabbi Sachs had said, you know, we could learn from the Sfaradim how they honor their parents and they honor rabbis and they give reverence to the, you know, to the older people and specifically to the scholars. And that's something that Sfaradim has a hallmark. You know, it's, it's very common that um, when the rabbi will come in, the whole congregation will stand, you know, intuitively without even having to think. And they'll kiss his hand. And even though it's a 90-year-old man and it's a 42-year-old rabbi, but they understand that the position deserves, you know, right. when a rabbi, let's say, goes up to the Sefer Torah by us, you know, the congregation stands for him. Uh, so in that sense, Rabbi Sachs, that's what we can learn from the Sferadim. And I said that what, what I was impressed by the Ashkenazim, which to their credit, um, amongst many things, is their organization skills. I mean, look at these organizations that Ashkenazim uh, built. You know, take the OU, for example, is one. Or, you know, take the, I don't know if you want to go, Agudat Yisrael, or these uh, major, major, like, these organizations, we have organizations that are communal. But these guys, bless you, they built these world-class organizations that are involved in, you know, major, major stuff at the highest, highest level, raising, you know, millions of dollars. So infrastructure, they're very, you know, methodical mm. and very logical how they, how they do that. So Kleist is better off because a lot of, you know, these organizations that only the Ashkenazim were able to put together, in my opinion. How, how have you navigated, many people may not be aware, Ashkenazim, that there's a Syrian ban on conversion that continues until today. Oh. The Syrian community does not accept um, or does not involved in the process of, of conversion. So how have you been able to navigate that? Um, do people perceive that as some form of a discrimination or bias? How do you communicate that to uh, a, a righteous Ben Noah who wants to become a, a righteous convert? Yeah, well, listen, the, the, the edict, as we call it, uh, was grandfathered in. So we were all born into it. Yeah. So we were, this is something that predated, uh, you know, me and my colleagues by, you know, 50 years. This has been already in the 1940s. And amazingly enough uh, to believe that, like any community, we can never get unanimous votes on anything. You know, there's always dissenting votes. But when it came to the edict, Every single rabbi of every organization put a signature to the edict and upholds it, which probably explains why the uh, assimilation rate in our community is close to zero. I'm not going to be you know, naive to say zero, but it, it, it's not a, a high percentage, or actually it's a very low, low percentage, and a lot of the credit is to the edict because they put a block. Now, it seems it, 50 years ago, there was a concern that people were converting for the wrong reasons, just to get in, to marry, and they were worried about it. Now, are there casualties because of the edict? A thousand percent. I mean, you, like you said, you have the Gerd Sedek that's coming, you know, with all the, you know, the trimmings, the bells and whistles, and the edict 
blocks it. And the, the, the logic of that, I guess, is because, you know, once you start making exceptions, there's a breach in the fence. So then it, it doesn't have teeth anymore. So like, like any takanat is going to be casualties to when you feel bad about the casualties. But then again, I always think that if you're really a good syndic and you're a righteous guy, you know, what do you want to be a Syrian for? Go to Bnei Berak and live with the tzaddikim. What do you, what do you want to live with us? <laughs> a lot of tzaddikim among the Syrians. So <laughs> is there ever a conversation about um, withdrawing the edict? Is is the edict, when the edict was set, it was forever? Yeah, and it was actually uh, re-ratified a couple of times hmm. just to make sure that, um, I think they re-ratified it uh, as far as 10 years ago, I think was the last time they did it. And it hangs. It hangs in every synagogue. So when you walk into a Syrian synagogue, I mean, the document is on the wall. It's, it's in the wall. So everybody should know that. Now, I want to make one thing clear. God forbid it doesn't say that you, know, you have to torment the uh, the convert, God forbid. You know, when I went out to that, when I cruel people, <clears throat> it's just that maybe there's certain amenities that a community will afford its members. And uh, to dissuade our members from doing that, they won't be afforded. But of course, they're welcome into the synagogue. I mean, if a convert comes to the synagogue, of course he's given, you know, red carpet and white gloves. Right? Like the Torah right. says. It's just that these amenities, uh, like attending the community school or attending, let's say, the community uh, uh, halls or, or cemetery, things, things like that, it's a, it's a block just to protect uh, the community's yehus, uh, it's, its lineage. There's something to be said for it because I'm involved. We have a, a based in Figueres here in South Florida. And I can't tell you how often we have candidates who some Israeli guy or a Sephardi person, um, and I don't mean to stereotype or generalize, uh, but they met a non-Jewish girl and they fall in love. They want to get married. And the mother, the grandmother says over my dead body or I'm not coming or you're out of your mind. You need to get her converted. Now, what often happens, it's fascinating, is that the girl is introduced to Judaism, to Torah and mitzvahs, falls in love with it, becomes much more intensely observant than this guy ever wanted. They break up. She becomes Jewish. And he moved on. That's happened to us several times, many times. But interesting is that, I guess what you're saying is that a Syrian boy never looks at a non-Jewish girl. There's no possibility of converting her. There's nothing that will make your mother or grandmother happy. You're out, you're done. So therefore, you don't even set eyes on even within the realm of possibility. And that's an edict for that community. Not for everybody and, and other communities have not. But it's a fascinating perspective. Right. So, there is a precedent. I mean, We always get pushed back. Hey, the Torah says, the Torah says, the cover. Is Maimonides definitely writes that in the times of King Shilomo, they didn't accept converts. There were certain times where they didn't accept because they felt that it might be, you know, compromised and not for, for, for the right reason. So there is definitely a precedent in Jewish history that there were times where converts right. were. Uh, and by the way, if somebody would come to me uh, uh, and want to convert the Shem Shamayim, we tell him absolutely, just not here. And we would guide him to the right Bedin to do it and good luck and, you know, we'll give you all the help you want. But just, you know, know, know your limitations. You're not going to be able to find a place here that comfortably. So there's no flexibility, no negotiating when it comes to, to Geras, to conversion. And yet there's been some movement on the issue of Agunas within the Syrian community. And I know that you were involved. I know that you've taken a stand. It's been, takes courage. Um, you know, we've also been involved in our community in doing it. Not everybody appreciates it. And I, whenever I bring up this topic, I'm always careful to say not every wife is innocent and every husband is a perpetrator. There are cases where the wife is doing alienation and the husband is the victim and we need to stand with him. So each case has nuance and needs a base then and Rabbanim who are investigating and being fair. But you've you've taken courageous stands. You've helped. What's some of the movement within the Syrian community on, on the issue of Aguna? Well, you know, people weren't aware of it. So we, we brought it to the uh, to the forefront. There was, I think, three or four 
you know, high-profile cases. I mean, in the rabbinate, it was high-profile, but to the people, and everybody goes out there on their business, and nobody knows the nitty-gritty every day of the fights in court and the back and forth between. And um, we brought it, again, using uh, social media and these things. It was brought to the, uh, the forefront. And, you know, our people are very sensitive, like all Jews are sensitive, and they saw injustice. You know, it spoke to them a lot. And then it, it, organically, it just... It wasn't an intention to create a, a ruckus or, a, you know, a, a, a riot, God forbid. That wasn't an intention at all. It was just awareness of these cases. And then all of a sudden, uh, organically, pressure brewed within the people. And then, I mean, bless the people, the the, 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 the couples that were trying to get divorced. These people came to their senses. And I give them credit, you know. It's in the, they finished it amicably and they gave the gitin. And um, I'd like to say everybody lives happily ever after, but it's usually not happily ever after. There's always, you know, some bumps in the road and hiccups. But um, it's really to the credit of the community when, they, when there was such an outrage. And again, I want to point out the Gitin were given by reputable Batedinim. You know, we didn't put a gun to a guy's head or put him in a stranglehold, which is clearly forbidden and any sorts of things like that. It was done, you know, obviously, which is Gitin is not my forte, obviously. I don't sit on a Betin for that. But they were brought to the right rabbis and they gave it kedat balacha. And uh, yes, it, it, listen, there are some cases that are still outstanding. And to the rabbi's point, absolutely. Uh, we have just as many cases where the man is an agun and he's being you know, held up because of a girl wants more money and whatever she wants and she won't receive the gift. So right. we understand that it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a two-way street. It happens to be the cases that we were involved in was in the side that the... Uh, the girl was being held up, but we're right. not naive to, to understand that it can happen just as much or even more the other way as well. Is, is the Syrian community, do you think that there'll be any shift or change? Just like there was an edict, there was a takana when it came to conversion. Is the community talking about introducing any takana, whether it's a halachic prenuptial agreement or any other solution so that there aren't these challenges in the future? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the prenup uh, from the RCA, uh, we know uh, about it well. Some of the rabbis do use it. Uh, some of the other rabbis are a little hesitant. Uh, no disrespect to the RCA. They just had some halachic concerns about the, some monetary right. uh, forces. But I think they made an adjustment on it, actually, to satisfy those right. rabbis. And uh, it's being used more often. And even if it's not being used, the rabbi that's officiating the wedding is starting to speak to the couple and, you know, in the proper way, telling them, listen, right. if it doesn't work out, you have to give me your word properly you're going to come to me you're going to come to this rabbi and this rabbi and we're going to do this in the proper way and so we get at least uh, some verbal or you know commitment in the beginning even from the beginning i really appreciate your time a couple more questions so i want to go behind the beam a little personal with you if it's okay which is you know there there are um outstanding rabbanim who are tamid chachamim who are very learned who teach torah but are very dry they don't they don't have a charismatic personality and there are people who've been blessed with very charismatic personalities. They're, they're orators, they're able to articulate, they're able to inspire, and they're, they don't necessarily have the most sophisticated working knowledge of Torah or of Torah material. And you you seem to blend the two beautifully. You're, you're a Talmud Chacham, you're producing and distributing enormous amounts of Torah, and, and you're an amazing, amazing speaker to listen to. That's why we pack the house every time you come to BRS, and that's why you're brought all over the world, is because you mix in stories and jokes and Torah when did you know that you had the gift of gab? When did you know 
that you had this power? Were you were you you know eight years old and entertaining the whole family at the yuntif table? When, yeah. when did you discover this quality that you had in you? And and who were your mentors? Is there a speaker that you listened to in the past, or you even listen to now, and you say? Ooh, there's a lot to learn from him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk in that way, or I'm gonna try to imitate. I'm gonna follow that pattern. Is there a particular speaker that inspires the way that you're able to connect with your listeners? Well, obviously, the gift of gab came before the gift of Torah. The Torah didn't come till I got a little older. But um, my grandmother, rest in peace, would tell me as a youngster, I guess about 10, 11, you remind me of your namesake, Eli Mansell, the, the name that I'm. That I'm named after. We name after the grandparents. So there's another Eli J. Mansour that preceded me. That's my grandfather. And supposedly, I never saw him. He, he died before I was born. Uh, he was a very charismatic and always the life of the party, jokes, and you know, the people were attracted. So my grandmother would say, Wow, you remind me just of your namesake. So that was from, from a young time. Uh, I will say, I had a lot of friends. I cannot deny that. And we, we, we had a good time. And Heverman. Yeah, probably. Probably, I had most of the most of the speaking time was given to me. I'll tell you one cute story. When I was young, uh, it was Shabbat. It was in Deal, New Jersey, near summer. And me and my friends, we were pious in those days. After shul, we'd go home for lunch. We'd come back to the synagogue to clean the synagogue. And we got this bug in our head. You know, we're going to take it upon us, volunteers. That is clean the synagogue. We put all the talets away and the sidurim away. You know, clean up whatever it is. So when the people come back from Minha. The shul's uh, tidy. Uh, that was our mitzvah. So uh, there happened to be an older man sitting in one of the seats there. He happened to come early to shul. He was reading Tehillim. And I was maybe eight, nine years old. And right after I finished cleaning the synagogue, I walked up to the bima and I stood at the pulpit. And I banged on the pulpit and I said, Rabotai! <laughs> and the guy looked up and said, you're a natural. Wow. <laughs> That's it. That's a premonition. It's going to happen one day. Now, regarding... Regarding um, people that inspired me, of course, I had a lot of great rabbis, <clears throat> but I think um, I think I have a um, uh, a concern always uh, that I don't like to copy anybody. Uh, uh, I, I feel that uh, you know, of course, listening to the great rabbanim, I listen to them all: English, Hebrew. I love my rabbi was Acham Baruch Ben Hayim, who was the Habruta Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. So we learned from. Great, great scholars. I learned from again students of Rabbi Cutler as well. I learned, so to, to all of Hasidut, Litvak, Syria. I'm open for anything that's uh, emet and true and beautiful. I said, but in style of delivery, I have a um, you know uh, a concern that if you start to copy somebody, then, then then you're not yourself. Although a lot of people try to copy me, but I, I don't like to copy anyone because Hashem made me who I am. So that's right. it. I, there's only one me, and I like to be, you know, authentic. I think, you know, when when they have those, um, uh, you know, these these public speaking courses, you know, my my opinion, uh, it's very good. I guess people have to make speeches in public, but a lot of it's mechanical. It's a, right. It has to be a gift of God to just able to do it. Naturally. You don't think you you either have it or you don't have it. You don't. Right. I, I believe that. Matana from Hashem, and uh, I listen to everybody, but I I, I make a conscious effort. Try not to copy. And one of the best gifts that I think I ever got from one of my Bali Batim was a leather-bound thesaurus. You know, before we had, you know, internet where you could just Google, you know, and makes a speech. It's a secret for young guys that are trying to give speeches. Get a thesaurus. And uh, what what happens in a speech is 
you're obviously there's a theme of the speech and there's a word that's going to represent that theme and you're going to beat that word to death and the, the people listening we can't hear that word anymore <laughs> but the thesaurus will give you an ability to spice it up to give variations mm. of that same word so it never gets uh you know humdrum or or, or, or boring so that's a that's a trick of the trade you work on you work on your speaking style do you listen to oh. yourself or do you try to incorporate new things do you say you know what so i've had success till now i'm pretty good to go so I get up and it's going to just happen naturally. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I said, I'm not, I, you know, maybe there's some natural talent, maybe, thank God, but it, it has to be developed. There's no speech that I don't prepare and rehearse it. You know, I, I don't rehearse it to the wall, but thank God my schedule allows me to give some of the marquee classes in, let's say, the yeshiva two days before to the, to the guys or the girls in the seminary. So by the time it comes Shabbat, you know, it's perfected. You know, mm. I, I know which, what stays, what goes out. So, you know, they're hearing it. They think they're hearing it for the first time, but there's a lot of rehearsals. That go. What's what's harder in, in every shira speech that you give? Is it harder to come up with the Torah content or to find the right joker story? You know, jokes come natural. It's the Torah context. And by the way, it's not the jokes because in, in, in Shabbat class, there's a lot of interaction. So it's it's it's, it's spontaneous stuff. Ah. So you got to be ready to come back with the, you know, the, the, the answer to the one improv. line. A little stand-up and improv. Where, where Where's the source? I should ask you this offline, by the way, because we don't want our Balabatim to hear this, but... You know, you incorporate, you weave in a lot of stories and you weave in great jokes and you even woven Ben Franklin before. Where, where does that come from? In the old days, you know, people had a reader's <clears throat> digest. They'd come up with some good stuff. Where, where, where do you find that kind of a material? You know, it's very simple. Today we have uh, Google, Shada Gilgulim. You type in uh, quotes on worth at work ethic. Bingo. Right. Comes up all these. And listen, you read that and you'd be surprised. A little spice like that, it keeps the attention of the listener it just keeps them and it makes it a well-rounded you know it's a full-bodied so you're getting everything we had a rabbi in, in Sharetra, the high school and he was teaching us gemara once uh, every day that is and he we get to the word teku you know you see the gemara when when a question is left unanswered right so he said to us he said boys this question is left in abeyance and abeyance what in the world what is abeyance what, what, what are you talking about <laughs> and then he said you know what not only am I going to teach you Gemara, but I'm going to teach you how to speak English also. So that's that's part of it. You, know, you, you should come out of a speech learning everything. A little bit of everything. Do, how do your congregants, how do your Balabatim feel about sharing you with the world? So right now you're in Miami for a speaking engagement. You travel a lot. Pesach, you said you go away. And even just on a regular basis, because you have 25,000 subscribers, you know, maybe David Silverberg is the one who's transcribing it. But in the end of the day, those 25,000 people they also feel Rabbi Mansur is my Rebbe. I'm a student of Rabbi Mansur. Maybe they email you, they text you, they want to meet with you, they want your time. How do your Balabatim feel sharing you with the world? Is it created a tension? Yeah, they're not happy, that, that's for sure. And they're very overprotective. Uh, thank God Hashem sent me a little Yeshua in this, this Zoom uh, uh, you know, technology now. Because now, although they can't have me physically present, but, you know, that's it. There's no excuse. I can't say I'm going away. See you later. You're on your own. This right. morning we gave the daf using the, the Zoom. And we, we, we don't went to vacation. You know, it's 5.30 in the morning. There goes your vacation. 5.30 on the Zoom. And they're listening. So it got a little easier. It's Shabbat. We haven't found the Shabbat Zoom yet. But, uh, yeah, they, I, I, I'm happy. I guess it's a compliment that they're overprotective. I guess right. if the rabbi said, I'm going away for Shabbat, the congregation said, great, have a good trip. You might say to yourself, whoa, I'm doing something wrong. So there's, there's still, uh, you know, as long as I'm still wanted back in Brooklyn, I think, I think I'm doing okay.
There's a good tension. All right, you've been generous with your time. We'll close out with one last question if we can of Mansoor. It's always great to spend time together. What, both the result of the pandemic, which has had a huge impact and continues to, but just in general, you're somebody who sees the Jewish world, you're part of the Jewish world, you're speaking to the Jewish world. What what concerns do you have? What are you worried about? What are you seeing within the Torah world, the Orthodox world, the general Jewish world? What are the things that, so to say, keep you up at night, that make you concerned, that make you worry about our future? And, and what gives you optimism and hope? What are the trends that you see that make you say, we're getting something right? There's a bright future. I'm really excited. No. For sure, as a gener- generally, we are, everybody should be concerned about the uptick in anti-Semitism that we're seeing, you know, all over the world. That always should concern the Jewish people. And especially that, you know, you don't have to be so bright anymore to start to see, you know, uh, parallels or trends in the great country that we're living in that remind us of other trends of previous generations where, you know, it didn't end in the way we would want it. So for sure, these things keep you up at night. You know, when you start to see politicians that never would speak against the state of Israel publicly, that was considered taboo. Nobody would ever do that. And nobody would not show up to APAC, you know. And if they couldn't show up, they would give an excuse. You know, I had a meeting, I was sick. Now I'll tell you straight out, I'm not coming because I I disagree with it. Right. Which is a shift change. It used to be when, you know, we call our senators, they pick up our phones. But now they don't right. pick up so fast. So that, that starts to concern you, that when you start to see uh, the leaders and the government, eh, it's a little shift in attitude. It's not, uh, it's not the way it was. And uh, that, that's a concern also. Be- and probably that's the silver lining of it, because maybe God's trying to tell us, you know, don't put your faith in that. And put, re- return and put your faith back into God, like it always was. The Bode Olama bring us the salvation. Ultimately, God has proven himself time and time again that he's you know, relieved us from the worst enemies that we've ever had. And I think God's trying to bring us back to that belief that you can't trust even democracy. You know, we, we thought democracy, that's it. It's the cure all. And we're watching you know, democracy to a certain degree crumble, crumble in front of our eyes. Who would have thought we could live in a generation that it'll be, I'm not going to say mainstream, but it'll be repeated enough that, you know, police are bad people. And, you know, protecting the streets is not a good thing. And, you know, why are we putting people in jail? Whoa, where did we get to that from? So that's a concern. You know, if you're, you're a father and grandfather, that's children walking in the street. And now right. you know that government has a different attitude, at least from the liberal town that I come from. As, as, that's why we love to come to Florida. because it's a little breath of fresh air. They're still, they're still, you know, a little, a little more old-fashioned than the progressives that, you know, from the state that I come from. No disrespect. But uh, that concerns me. The good news is, Good news is, is that uh, listen, look, look how much Torah and look how much um, you know learning is being promoted, like rabbis like yourself and all over the every language today. The kids could go online and learn the Daf Gemara. Uh, they could learn uh, if you're an older guy, you can learn the Daf Zohar. You know, today, there's nothing you can't learn. Everything's accessible. In the older days, I remember, you know, you wanted to understand a word in the Talmud, you had to get the Sansino Gemara. And you needed a dictionary to explain sure. the English. And, and, and we didn't even stand it. Remember those old Gemariot? Sure. And today, sure. today, look what's going on. You know, today it's a renaissance period. Like the, the, the generation of Kaskia, where every kid was studying and it was taught all over the place. And it became vogue, let's put it that way, to study. You know, even regular mainstream guys, they have their class. You know, they go into their, to their shi'ud. It became, uh, it became in fashion. And that's it. The Orah Haim in this week's parasha will conclude. If you look at the beginning of the parasha, Tetzaveh, he says, 
Moshe Rabbe, each one of the exiles and the redemptions represent one of the uh, Avot. So the first uh, Galut and redemption was Keneged Abraham, and the second is Keneged Yitzhak, and the third Keneged Yaakov. Now we're in the fourth exile. This is the fourth exile, Urahim HaKadosh says, is Keneged Moshe. Right. And he says, Moshe is going to only redeem us when there's a renaissance in Torah, because in Moshe hafez all amshel batlanim. He doesn't mm. want to redeem a bunch of idlers. And I think uh, if that's the case, there's much more Torah in the world, and uh, therefore we could be optimistic that uh, the Geulah is uh, is on the way. That's a great place to end because you're enormously responsible for it. I, I know I read an interview. Segments of the community who, who didn't have access and weren't learning, who had rich, rich cultures of, of Amuna and of practice and of serving Hashem, but, but Torah study formalized and fixed was not necessarily part of it. And you've really brought that to them and to us. And for that, we are so grateful. So Mitzvah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all that you do. Shem should bless you to continue to speak and to inspire. And uh, we, we should be able to continue to have you visit us and spend time together. So thank you very, very much for your time. Yom Tov, Rabbi. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Thank you. Be well. Rabbi Brody, Rabbi Mitzvah. Wow. Wow. Thoughts on Rabbi I love his honesty and I love his confidence and he's just so strong and excited and proud. He's got I a great him. energy for someone yeah. who wakes up five o'clock in the morning. He's got a great energy. He knows a lot of Torah. He's a great speaker. One of the big things I took away was he talked about how much preparation he does and the rehearsals he do. You know, earlier tonight when we had the event, Joanna Benarush was talking about Rabbi Sachs. Right. He talked about the TED talk he gave, how many weeks he wrote, rewrote and drafts how hard he worked, how he rehearsed, how he perfected. Sometimes we hear a Rabbi Sachs, we hear Rabbi Mansur, and you're like, they're a natural, it's easy, they get up, it flows. There's no work involved. Right. Anyone you see is on top of their game. Anyone you see is a lot of work. They do, there's a lot of work. Yeah. Anyone you see is on top of their game is doing a lot of work. That's, That's the bottom I, line. That's why, I, and you get you get to do that on, on Shabbos when you go to different minyan and before you go to, let's say, the main, right? So you get a chance. Arab Shabbat. It's a world like, of difference. Yeah, when you I go, give it in different Midianim. I go, I go to uh, Sinai, and the first one I give to, I go into the, uh, it's the assisted living, it's the uh, the memory care. I'm not sure how many people are even aware of what I'm saying, but you give it everything you got, and it just, it's like, okay, did that sound good? I don't know if they understood, right. but. Did I that wish flow? It, did the joke right. land? Did right, exactly. Word, the intonation? Exactly. Yeah, people you don't know, realize a lot of work goes there's in. There's a lot that goes in. Sure. I mean, our job, our job is to make it look easy. And that's true right. for everybody in any profession. And a lawyer with the closing argument, the doctor does the surgery, businessman negotiates the deal. The job is to make it look easy, but to make it look easy, it's a lot of work. And it's also it's that way that he said that he does make it easier by having someone else transcribe his his classes and and then he just reviews it. So sometimes there's, there's working hard and working smart and mm. getting getting more done with the uh, the time that you have. Mm. Yeah, I was so, jealous of that. Right. I, I like that I idea. And <laughs> No, I, I noticed you, you 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 had the name ready to go when you asked him later about the yeah, name. You'll notice. Exactly. <laughs> I noticed. Exactly. I you know, I, I heard from a major Jewish publisher, maybe the head of Art Scroll, that the truth is that many of the books that we get from right. great people, including let's say your Rebbe, right. um, they haven't written one book in their life. They take the best of their shirum of their lectures, and somebody who's able to capture their voice writes it. In fact, he told me that um, head of art school, he said it'd be a waste of your time to write a book. If you teach a lot and you speak a lot, find the right person who can capture and write. Right. And, and then you'll be able to publish and um, without doing all the work. Now, one of the biggest consumers of Rabbi Mansur's writings is my daughter, Tara Minsky. 
Wow, didn't know that. Her father, her father-in-law, my mechutin. Yes. Beloved Bruce Minsky, one of a kind. Bruce is fantastic. He loves learning. He loves being a Sephardi. And he prints out Rabbi Mansur every Shabbos. He reads it. He got a Torah hooked on it. And uh, they love Rabbi Mansur. Mansur's stuff is great. You know why? Again, Rabbi Mansur, he's got that, that quality. He's not sharing something that doesn't hit you in the gut. Right. Some people share. It's interesting. It's esoteric. It's theoretical. And some people that everything they share, it's relevant. It resonates. Right. It lands. So he's able to anticipate that. He knows that. And he's able to make that happen. So it's really, uh, it's really great. It was great to have him on. It's great. An it's honor big, and a privilege. Honor. Yeah. We said he's down in Florida. Maybe uh... he's down in Florida. <laughs> so Rabbi Brody, are you running another marathon? I want you to know, after this one, I told you after the first one, I, I made a, I made, made a, I don't know what you call it, a shvu and editor. I said, I'm not doing this ever again. After this one, I said, I'm definitely doing it again. And I'm doing it next year. And I'm going to start training. And I'm not going to let that happen. Got I got I got to end with some. Because you could go one of two ways. You could be like, I'm hanging them up. I'm done. Or I got to come back. That can't be the way I leave it. Yeah, that's the way. That's I think it's number two, and um, maybe next year will be the last one. But I got to give it. And also, I would love to run with my buddy. I don't think I'll be able to keep up with that guy, but uh, I know yeah, I feel bad because be because he, uh, you know, he wanted to do Boston. He wanted to do all these other marathons, and yeah, you know, well, we miss him. We love Rabbi Moskowitz. We're thinking about him and and about his daughter Esther Tehila Bas Ariel Tipora. Looking forward to his, May- his being back and rejoining us and hearing any any chance we can get you on the next one. I told you, aside from, the fact that, aside from the fact that I'm not a young man, I don't know if you've noticed, I know I look young for my age, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm not a young man. Like, maybe not, you could do it. Maybe you, you think you'd- The question is why. Like, it, I understand just, the people just who because, want to do it. There's yeah. no judgment or criticism of the people who want, but, I, but I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know. Just, I may give it one more shot. If I can get myself to run with my kid, my okay. kids- there might be one shot left. Yeah, why don't we do that? I think they have a 5K that day too. <laughs> 5K. I want you to. I was. I was driving. I was driving to school the next day with my kids. I literally couldn't get out of bed. My. I for for two days. I I, I couldn't walk. Um, when I say I couldn't walk, I literally could not walk. It was a joke. I couldn't walk. My back was killing me. And then I, I was driving my kids to school, and I, they said, "Well, how long does it actually take to run?" I right. said, "It was almost three hours." So, what was the distance? I said, "It's like driving from." Montoya Circle to school, right? To to the Federation campus and driving back. That's the half marathon. Now do it again. And that's the marathon. Wow. It's it's a yeah. it's a lot of running. It's a lot of it's running. A, yeah. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. It is. You gotta pace is. yourself. There's a lot of metaphors about running for life, which we will share for another time. Thank you, Rabbi Mansur. It was great. If you'd like Amazing. to sponsor a future episode, got a big Please. audience. You can reach a lot of people. Go to beerasonline.org slash sponsor brsonline.org slash sponsor we'd love to help you promote in honor and memory or some other cause organization or for-profit business it's a great way to get it across so let us know we'd love to include you until next time rabbi josh brody stay happy stay healthy stay holy thank you for listening to behind the bima if you enjoyed the show please subscribe rate and review on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.